The crypto space has long awaited the institutional wall of money that would come with pensions, endowments, sovereign wealth funds. But that's been largely impossible because they can't buy and hold spot Bitcoin and the instruments and products that exist right now are not really compliant. That would change with a Bitcoin ETF and Grayscale, led by Michael Sundenshine, is now suing the SEC on March 7th to convert GBTC to a spot ETF. It would change literally everything for the crypto space. That's dope. I think that Grayscale and GBTC are a household name at this point. You've got have been around a long time. I think that people both inside and outside the crypto industry know about it. But I think there's probably a lot of confusion as to how the trust actually operates and what's under the hood of GBTC. Could you kind of give us the primer? Yeah, um, I'd love to. It's great, great to sit down with you. Great to chat. Um, looking forward to getting into a bunch of topics. So I think it really all dates back to 2013. Uh, the Grayscale team was was very early to identify crypto uh, was going to become an asset class when a lot of people thought we were crazy um, to think that it would become an asset class. And I think we were also early to identify that people were going to want to have access to crypto. Um, but where would they buy it? How would they transfer it? How would they store it? How would they safe keep it? And I think born out of those challenges is the Grayscale business and the Grayscale value proposition. So. What did we do? Um, we launched as an American asset manager, making use of American, you know, US tried and true securities rules and regulations and said to ourselves, if we can bring crypto to people in a way that feels familiar, feels traditional, um, well, perhaps we can be that springboard to more people investing in crypto. And so we started um, with what is our flagship offering, our largest offering, uh, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. So Grayscale Bitcoin Trust is a long-only, passively managed Bitcoin fund. Um, it has grown to become the largest Bitcoin fund in the world. It holds, you know, probably about close to three and a half percent of all the Bitcoin outstanding. And when you invest in Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, you buy shares of the trust. And what are those shares backed by and invested in? Just Bitcoin. Um, and that's really a model that I think has been battle tested for all kinds of commodities, right? Scott, if you want gold exposure, you're going to go into a brokerage account and buy shares at GLD or for oil, you buy USO, right? And so we really view Grayscale Bitcoin Trust and its ticker symbol GBTC um, really as an access product for Bitcoin. And so, you know, today that fund has, you know, call it 15, $16 billion in AUM. And it's really just one of uh, 17 different digital asset products we have at Grayscale. That's a lot of Bitcoin. So can you then explain, obviously, as a bridge to what's inevitably going to be our next conversation, which is the attempt to convert GBTC into an ETF? Sure. What is the inherent difference between the trust and an ETF? So what would that look like? How would that benefit you know, customers and retail? What are the differences? Well, I think it's important to start with where um, where GBTC started. Um, so it started as a Delaware grantor trust. So that's the, the legal structure that surrounds GBTC. And we purposely chose a Delaware grantor trust because that's actually what we knew we always wanted to be, an ETF. And so when we canvassed you know, assets and, and products like GLD and others, they are also Delaware grantor trusts. So this product was always envisioned uh, to become an ETF. And what we've seen and experienced since 2013 when we launched is, you know, kind of varying attitudes around Bitcoin 
in crypto more generally from regulators and in particular the SEC, which is obviously the regulator here in the US and responsible for administering our capital markets and ETFs and all securities for that matter. And um, GBTC today is not an ETF. Um, instead, what GBTC is, is it is bought and sold on the secondary market um, under the ticker GBTC by buyers and sellers on regular trading days, anyone who has access to the US securities market. And the shares that they're buying and selling actually represent the secondary market for shares that were originally purchased through GBTC's private placement. Now, because GBTC is not an ETF, the shares of GBTC can rise in value up above at a premium to the actual Bitcoin that the GBTC shares hold and are invested in, or fall below that value to a discount um, to the value of the, the Bitcoin that, that gives it the value and that it holds. Um, and so in that regard, I think there's a lot of folks who sometimes look at GBTC and say, well, it kind of looks more like a closed end fund, which you know historically does have premiums and discounts, but it's not a closed end fund. It's an open ended structure. And so we have been pursuing throughout GBTC's life and, and still to this very day, this very conversation, pursuing an ETF, because if GBTC were to convert to an ETF, it would have that embedded arbitrage mechanism that would keep the shares of GBTC trading in line with the Bitcoin that it holds, and it wouldn't no longer have fluctuations of premiums and discounts, and would instead track the Bitcoin price effectively, you know, over time. So it obviously then, as you said, track spot price. Would that also reduce fees and expenses for retail? And how would that then affect your business? It's a great question. So one of the things I've said publicly and happy to say again today is um, we are going to lower the management fee on GBTC in an ETF format. Um, we're you know, certainly convinced that GBTC's conversion is inevitable. Um, it's a matter of when, not a matter of if. And we also believe that GBTC's conversion to an ETF will also likely open the floodgates to other products entering the market and certainly one of the ways that products may compete with one another is on fees. So tough to kind of start that kind of quote unquote fee war between, you know, theoretical products coming to market. But we certainly know that there will be fee compression. And we are, again, still committed to lowering the, the, the fees on GBTC as an ETF. So the assumption, obviously, is that if you do get approved or someone else does, then there will probably be a flood of similar project pr products being approved. We'll see I mean, multiple spot ETFs uh, with time. I think so, right? I mean, we have countless examples of that today. There's thousands of ETFs here in the US. Um, there's numerous ETFs that give exposure to the S&P 500, numerous ETFs that give exposure to gold. And even if you want to look at Bitcoin more specifically, we saw in 2021, the approval of the first Bitcoin futures ETF led to now the approval of, I think we might have four, maybe five Bitcoin futures based ETFs. So, um, you know, there's different, you know, methodologies, different issuers, different fees, different, you know, there's differentiation between these products. But yeah, I would certainly expect the same thing in the spot Bitcoin product space. Okay, well, let's talk about why they have approved Bitcoin futures ETFs and why we have not seen the approval of a spot ETF. And, and now I know we're sort of uh, pandering and conjecture here because none of us are sitting in the meetings. But why sure. do you think that they did approve that futures ETF, which you could even argue looking back was probably a negative for the market, uh, you know, longer term without the spot ETF being available? Yeah. So um, 
I think we have to kind of look at kind of the history of, of how this has gone at the SEC. So I think the earliest um, point in time when the SEC received a Bitcoin ETF application might have been as early as 2013 or 2014. Um, and all the way through 2021, the SEC had rejected or you know asked issuers to pull back their filings for any application that came to them for a Bitcoin ETF, a Bitcoin futures based ETF, you name it. So there was kind of a level playing field. Um, what was interesting to us, and I guess the investment community as a whole, is that they changed their attitude somewhat in 2021 and approved the first Bitcoin futures-based ETF. And I think if you're listening or, or watching, you know, Scott and I today, you know, it's important to kind of take a look at that. A, a futures contract itself, right? And let's talk about a Bitcoin futures contract itself for a minute is a derivative by definition, no disputing that it's a derivative of Bitcoin. And when you look at where a Bitcoin futures contract gets its pricing and gets its value, it's from where do you think the spot Bitcoin market because it's a derivative of that spot Bitcoin market. And so what's so um, interesting about this change in behavior in 2021 with the first Bitcoin futures ETF is that it signaled to us and I think the investment community as a whole that perhaps the SEC was starting to change their tune around Bitcoin linked products. And um, from that point on, it kind of created this unlevel playing field where now we've seen several Bitcoin futures ETFs get approved, come to market. But not only has the SEC denied GBTC's conversion to an ETF, but also multiple other spot Bitcoin ETF applications that have subsequently been filed and denied by the SEC. And what's kind of curious about that stance is that the SEC's posturing around this has really been that they have concerns about the underlying Bitcoin market is, is really what they've said in all these denials. Is it that Bitcoin's susceptible to fraud or manipulation, or perhaps there isn't a significant enough Bitcoin spot market that's regulated and overseen? And the fact that that is their conjecture um, is really arbitrary, right? Because if that's their issue that they've stated many, many times in many, many denials, well, then how do they get comfortable that it's all those same markets, all those same exchanges that give value to the Bitcoin futures contract and thus the Bitcoin futures contract ETF, right? Um, and that's where we find ourselves today. And in the early days of the futures ETF, there weren't even enough contracts for the ETF. Right. It was so popular initially for that first month or two that they were having to go by, you know, three months, six months, nine months dated, which obviously then puts a larger spread from spot price to the price of the ETF. It's just really not an ideal product. I'm glad that we had it. I'm glad that there was the path Damn. to approval for full transparency. I'm an investor in Valkyrie, right? So I was, I was not, uh, unexcited when I saw the approval, but rationally, that's not really tracking the underlying asset. No. And, and listen, I want to make sure that, you know, as we have this conversation, I'm on record being clear that I'm not saying that I am um, against Bitcoin futures, you know, contracts or against the Bitcoin futures cohort of ETFs. In fact, I think as someone now who's been in crypto for nine plus years, I've never been more encouraged that the Bitcoin market and the trading tools and the order management systems and the development of derivatives and borrowing and lending and the 24-hour market that's been created, it's never been more robust, right? And so I actually view each of these incremental um, additional tools that investors now have 
as additive to the overall Bitcoin ecosystem. So I'm certainly a proponent of it. But to your point, I think many investors would probably say that a Bitcoin futures ETF may be a little bit more of a trading tool, um, given its inability to you know track spot and low costs and other you know potential deficiencies of the product, as opposed to owning a spot Bitcoin ETF or owning a product like GBTC, where you're actually you know, more likely using it as an investment tool rather than a trading tool. For people who are using GBTC as an investment tool, you talked about the fact that you can obviously have this major premium or this major discount. I, I don't remember how high it went, but obviously 30, 40, you know, 50%. Yeah. It could also trade at a 50% discount. I mean, to your credit, you're trying to convert that to an ETF and that's not something that you can control. You offered, a, assume, assuming you offered the product that you could, and that's the nature of the product, much like what we discussed with the futures ETFs. But for investors, doesn't that mean that having it as a spot ETF would be just exponentially better because they wouldn't have to worry about that discount? Or are they just going to be pushed towards finding ways to purchase spot Bitcoin because they don't have to worry about it at all? There's a lot to unpack in that, in that question. So I think that um, there is no question that a spot Bitcoin ETF, the conversion of GBTC to a spot Bitcoin ETF is for sure the optimal product structure and the optimal outcome for current GBTC holders, as well as people in the future who are going to want to express a view on Bitcoin through a spot Bitcoin product, right? We're talking about a product structure as an ETF that, that again, is battle tested. It's a wrapper that investors know. It's a wrapper that gives added protections added oversight, trading on a national securities exchange. Um, there, there's only good that can come of bringing Bitcoin into that kind of wrapper, into you know that much further into the kind of regulatory perimeter and purview of, of regulators in that regard. Um, if you are a GBTC holder today, what you would effectively expect is that at such time that GBTC does convert to an ETF, you would expect that embedded arbitrage mechanism to eliminate any discount or premium. So if you're holding GBTC, you would actually be unlocking quite a bit of value. And I think the latest statistics are something like six to almost maybe even $7 billion that would actually go back into investors' pockets in an ETF format, right? And just to kind of tie a bow on that concept, if GBTC today is trading at you know 65 cents on the dollar because it has a 45% or 35% or discount or whatever it may be, that would effectively be eliminated. So whatever that differential is from a value perspective would just be marked to market and go back into investors' pockets. Um, I think also, which one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, Scott, is kind of regulation and what's going on in DC. But um, certainly one of the narratives that's resonated um, amongst you know, politicians and regulators that we're talking to quite frequently is that certainly in the wake of recent happenings in the crypto ecosystem, there is no question that investors would not have, to the extent they did, sought out offshore exchanges where they had fewer protections available to them um, if there was, in fact, already a spot Bitcoin ETF and gave investors the ability to access this you know, transformative asset in a way that was comfortable, familiar, and more than anything, gave them the, the you know, appropriate protections. Yeah, and there's, there's been quite a, quite a bit of talk about how regulation in advance of all of the contagion would have been quite helpful because people would have been op operating under the regulatory structure, but you guys do. 
right? So, yeah. uh, but but that leads to the unique challenge of actually having to deal with the regulator in the United States. I've sort of made the comment of late that I'm bullish on the concept of reasonable res- uh, regulation, but not necessarily so bullish on the regulators who are doing it at the moment. That's um that's a fair statement. I would say um you know it's it's still early 2023. Um, I'd say my team has been spending time in DC for the better part of call it the last six years. Um, we've already spent I think four full days on the hill. Um, in 2023 alone, and and here's what I'll tell you: um, the age, the not only are regulators um, very engaged on these issues and probably more educated and in tune with what's going on than they've ever been before, but importantly, um, from our legislators, um, I would say that you know there is a tremendous amount of interest in getting something done here, right? I think. The idea that um, any of the offices that we meet with um, on the, you know, on on the Senate side or on the House side could simply, you know, cover their eyes and plug their ears and think that crypto is going to go away. Um, that that notion is a, is is gone, right? People are not kind of taking that attitude. Instead, I think the conversations are very well informed. Um, I think a lot of them are looking back to those initial draft legislations that came through in 2022, which were a huge step forward, even though nothing got passed yet, that momentum is going to carry itself into 2023. And I do think we will see legislation passed this year. Um, And I think the question that really remains is, well, what's the first priority? Um, And I think we as an industry can can help to um, answer that question and be a resource. That's why we're down in DC. So do we tackle stable coins first? Do we tackle regulating... Um, you know, the intermediaries, right? Exchanges. Do we tackle, you know, the Howie test and what is a crypto security? What is a crypto commodity, right? These are the kinds of things that Hill offices are contending with to try and figure out where they want to put their resources. I spoke to Hester Peirce just this week, uh, SEC commissioner, and that was sort of her point was that we're regulating by enforcement, which she wants no part of, of course. Yep. That's largely because we've had no clear legislation and it's the only tool, sort of the idea that uh, if the only hammer, the only uh, tool in your box is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail, right? right. Uh, which is a, a analogy that I that I love. But you're obviously alluding to the Gillibrand Lummis bill uh, proposed last summer, which sort of laid out some, I think, very pragmatic ideas for what crypto legislation could look like. But we haven't heard about that at all at least from a no. public perspective. My gut, to your point, is that stable coins will be the lowest hanging fruit and that's where it will go first. Do you think that that is accurate? or do you, I don't see them changing the Howey test anytime soon, although that would be a very nice... Uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I really don't know. Um, it, it does seem perhaps like, you know, stable coins or are we going to develop a, you know, CBDC here in the US or not or some of the challenges that may be taken on first? Um, I will say there is an interesting and, and well-held appreciation for the fact that so much of the stablecoin ecosystem is already dollar-based, um, mm-hmm. whether you look at USDC or, or other assets. So I do think um, perhaps maybe more attention may end up getting paid there first before other areas. Um, but I also think um, something else that's been really helpful and encouraging to hear um, is that, you know, we at Grayscale who are, you know, at the moment litigating, you know, suing the SEC um, to, to get GBTC to convert to a spot ETF, 
um, everyone appreciates the fact that what we're trying to do for our investors doesn't require new legislation, right? At all. Um, You're at, registered. At all, right? We're, we're literally just making use of existing securities rules and regulations and trying to further enhance and further protect investors and make use of existing wrappers. So um, I, I, I'm encouraged and hopeful that um, as we continue to build more and more support for our lawsuit and the stands we've taken, that people understand here's something that we actually can do to help protect investors. And it doesn't take, you know, bipartisan support and kind of reaching across the aisle and, you know, doing all the things that are going to need to be done to get legislation passed. Here's something we can do without any new legislation. Um, and I and I think it's a big deal for GBTC. And I think it's a really big deal for Bitcoin as well. I think that's a really important differentiation because I think the general view is that we need mass legislation for anything to get done in crypto, but there are things that the laws already exist for. One of those, by the way, is fraud, which going back to sort of the FTX and all of the contagion, regulation maybe wouldn't have solved uh, someone who's just an outright fraudster stealing people's money, right? Correct. And that's already a crime and doesn't need more regulation either. Correct. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say... Um, you know, on the heels of FTX, I've taken kind of a gigantic step back and looked at, you know, how resilient crypto as a community is. There is, I think, more fingers than I have that I can count. Um, the number of times there has been an industry, you know, stalwart or kind of center of gravity that at one point it was inconceivable to think that that entity or that service or that offering um would would no longer be part of the crypto ecosystem right so whether that's ftx or mount gox or the previous concentration of mining power we saw in china these are all things that have one time been really important um ultimately have been weeded out of the ecosystem and and honestly as a as a whole our industry has been better off for it and i think time and again we just kind of demonstrate that we we continue to build we continue to grow um, and I think it's an important element of, of kind of crypto as as an industry and um, as a global community. Yeah, I think it said something that the price of Bitcoin obviously crashed with FTX's collapse, but then returned right back to the same price two months later. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because people love to talk about the idea that something as large as FTX or obviously the conjecture about Binance, it's never ending seemingly, but that it would be the end of the market and it never is. It exactly. never is. But that said, do you think that we've turned the corner on that contagion yet? I mean, listen, obviously, Genesis is under the same umbrella as DCG. They declared bankruptcy. Does that lead to any more problems? Is that in any way tied to what you guys are doing? Is there a problem there? Or is it completely separated? I mean, do you think we're basically over the hill now and uh, you know, an easy sailing? Or do you think we're going to see some more shoes dropping? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to say that... Um of the shoes that are going to drop, I'm hopeful they've all dropped by now. Um, you know, certainly um, we're, we're saddened as an organization and, and certainly me, you know, again, having been in crypto as long as I have, um, I'm obviously very sad to see a lot of people who got tripped up um, in either FTX or, or you know, who are, um, you know, waiting to kind of see how Genesis is, you know, bankruptcy turns out. Um, but yeah, I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, I, I honestly think that the combination of what we're seeing again now in the equity markets um, with you know volatility again, kind of not sure where rates are headed, but kind of starting to see how crypto is kind of holding in a pretty tight band from a price perspective, um, maybe are signs that things are de decoupling from, from the equity market. 
Um, and perhaps, um, you know, for most investors, they think that whatever pain is going to be in the market has now been out there and digested. Um, and it hasn't just been, you know, bankruptcies or insolvencies. We've seen a lot of pressure put on the miners sure. and, you know, other parts of the ecosystem. Um, so I, I'm hopeful um, whether, you know, I think we, you know, zip right back to all time highs or not obviously remains to be seen. But I will say that um, it is interesting in these kind of environments where prices become a little bit more stagnant, um, you really start to kind of weed out those that are kind of long term players and folks that are really building and focusing on the crypto ecosystem from those that are just kind of, you know, trying to turn a quick buck or um, yeah. kind of not really invested in crypto for the long term. Can't tell you how many times I've heard the uh, Warren Buffett quote over the past few months that when the tide goes out, you can finally see who's swimming naked. But uh, you yeah, have to continue to repeat it because it's so appropriate. Indeed. Um, interestingly, I mean, even speaking of, of Genesis, that bankruptcy didn't rock the market at all. I mean, we talked about FTX, obviously, sort of crashing the market and coming back. But when the Genesis bankruptcy was announced, price didn't even move. So even, I believe, if we have more contagion coming, it seems like it's somewhat priced in or at least expected. Yeah. And, and again, sorry, just to answer the question you asked me a minute ago, Scott. Um, yeah, I mean, Grayscale, we have no operational reliance on Genesis, right? So yeah. our customers' assets are segregated and, and secure and unencumbered. And, um, you know, the, the Genesis bankruptcy, even though we do share a parent company, um, you know, Digital Currency Group, you know, we are not directly and our customers are not directly affected by, by Genesis. Right. I, I think that's an important clarification for people. That said, for those who don't understand that, have you seen any negative pushback or do you think that the contagion in general, not even necessarily specific to Genesis, but has that bankruptcy or the FTX collapse or any of these things, do you think made your case harder? Like, do you think that now the regulator is so empowered or feels so compelled to bring down the hammer that we talked about before, that that even makes it less likely that you'll be able to get done what you want to in a timely manner? You know, it's such a good question. And I'm glad you're asking it because what's so great about our legal system here in the US is that the judges who are going to preside over our case, right? So we're, you know, directly suing the SEC, we're challenging uh, the denial that they made of GBTC's conversion to an ETF. Um, we are in uh, the appellate court in the in the District of Columbia Circuit. Um, those judges need to evaluate and rule on this case solely based on the facts and the circumstances that our attorneys give them, and the facts and circumstances that the SEC's attorneys give them. And so their in their their outcome and the way that they preside on this case should not be impacted at all, influenced at all by FTX or anything else that has transpired in the crypto ecosystem and solely, you know, judging this case based on what they're given. And we continue to feel as we head into the oral arguments of the case, which are um, scheduled for March 7th, that we really have straightforward, common sense, compelling arguments um, that the SEC has created an unlevel playing field here. And they acted arbitrary and they should not have you know, allowed a Bitcoin futures ETF or multiple Bitcoin futures ETF for that matter, enter the market without also approving spot Bitcoin ETFs like GBTC at the same time. So if you win, does that mean that you instantly are able to convert or are there further steps beyond that? Well, I think what will be the most likely outcome um, is that 
winning the case will mean that the SEC um, can no longer deny GBTC based on the facts and circumstances that they historically have. And so, like always, we do have a productive dialogue with the SEC, despite the fact that we are suing them. And so we would work to ensure that any you know other applications or other um, you know kinds of filings we might need to make um, would be you know to their you know would be amenable to them and um, and pursue the conversion you know as quickly as possible on the other side of of winning the case. There's been a lot of chatter from the SEC. Gensler specifically has made videos saying the industry should just come in, talk to us, work with us, register. I mean, you're the, you're one of the few that's actually attempted to try that. But do you think that that is misdirection? Uh, you know, sort of uh, Jesse Powell, obviously, at Kraken laughed it off and sent a tweet. Oh, ha, ha, ha. I should have just pushed a button and registered to become a security. And that's not really possible. I mean, do you think that there actually is a path right now for crypto companies to come in and work with the SEC? Or do you think that right now it's just sort of a stalemate? You know, Scott, I sure hope there is because that's what our tax dollars as, you know, tax paying Americans are are supposed to be going towards when our dollars go to fund the SEC's, you know, operations. I'll say that, you know, where I'm able to opine is really when it comes to grayscale. Um, we have had a again a very productive dialogue with the SEC. I mean, for years we go down to the commission, um, you know, standing room only, tons of people coming in, asking thoughtful questions. We're not always there with um, you know, just asks, but also there to help educate and and advocate for you know for our investors. And um, you know, I think the 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 idea that that is being continued to be pushed of come out, come in, come talk to us, come register. Um, what's ironic about that is Grayscale did come in and register, um, yeah. and we came in and registered well in advance of the SEC putting out this broad call to come in and register. Right, so. GBTC, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, voluntarily came in and became an SEC reporting company in January of 2020, right? So we've been filing since that time, 10Ks and 10Qs and 8Ks and subjecting ourselves to, you know, further disclosure and further, you know, regulatory reporting and really trying to do the best things possible for investors and to really advance the ball on the way that the SEC is thinking about crypto. So there is some irony there that we actually did come in and register, and despite that, um, still can't um, yet have what we know our investors want, and you know have obviously been very patiently waiting for, which is an ETF. Right, and obviously it's a challenging process for anyone to go and do all of that, and we've talked about it before, but that leaves most people, I think, seeking non-regulated places to do their trading and investing. And you don't get that level of transparency from most centralized exchanges, perhaps Coinbase, Gemini, because they're regulated, that that is the case. But even Coinbase now saying that they want to become a federally regulated exchange, which I think for a lot of people is probably a head scratcher who think they're somewhat federally regulated already. And, and, and that's one of the other narratives that I think has been really um, kind of discouraging as we've been spending time in Washington that people are taking note of with no guidance um, and no new sets of rules or regulations that account for the attributes that you know crypto assets have. A lot of these businesses are have or are thinking about taking their operations outside the United States. Um, and when you start talking to folks on the Hill, 
the idea of American competitiveness, the idea of Web3, you know, becoming, you know, something that, you know, is is centered around the UK or centered around Canada or centered around, um, you know, Germany or centered around, you know, parts of Southeast Asia like Singapore or in Hong Kong, other places that have had much faster, more formal guidance um, is is a really kind of bad spot to be in, right? This this isn't something that the U.S. should lose out on. Um, this this is the hub of you know capital and, and innovation, um, and I think it's really important that you know we are engaging in VC that that point is continued to be emphasized because if we don't do something about it, if you are running a business and it at all revolves around or touches crypto. It's very hard to continue to grow your products, grow your offerings solely by trying to not repeat the mistakes of the enforcement actions that are being put on people who are foot faulting, right? You can't just, you know, continue to operate a business and say, well, this company stepped on, you know, that landmine, so I'm going to make sure that I don't do that. That's not really a way to grow or, or, or to innovate. Um, and I think that's a challenge that we have and, and one that we need to continue to advocate for. It also doesn't protect the consumers who were hurt, which is the Certainly regulator's not. mandate. It's a, you know, to go after once everybody's already lost their money to then go enforce action instead of doing anything in advance has seemingly been the playbook, whether that's just because it's the only tools they have or not. I can't speak to, but it's been hard to watch. <laughs> There's uh, no question about it. I would say probably harder for you to watch probably uh, than most, to, to be quite honest. So then... The question is, what would be the ideal path? I know we won't get it, but what would be the ideal path for that innovation to remain onshore for the United States to be a leader? Is it legislation? Is it an, a new test that's not the Howey test that speaks to the actual technology and the fact that uh, a test from 90 years old probably doesn't apply to a new technology? Is it a regulator just for this asset class, you have the CFTC for commodities, the SEC for securities, and we have some sort of crypto regulator. What would be the ideal path if we got our choice? Um, I'm not going to pretend, Scott, that I have the the you know silver bullet um, for what it would be, um, but we need to just get started as a general matter, right? Um, some of the things you just listed out, not crazy at all. Um, you know, maybe we should have a totally new federal agency that oversees crypto um, because it is so nuanced and because it is so distinct from, you know, commodities or your securities. And thus, it shouldn't fall under the CFTC or the SEC. Maybe that's how this gets tackled. Um, we also certainly do need legislation, um, you know, to have an exchange come in and register um, is something I think many of them would be happy to do, but not without knowing where the line is drawn and drawn in a pragmatic and reasonable way, thinking about all the assets that they have available for you know trading on their exchange, which of those are securities and which of those are non-securities, right? And so some clarity around that, I think, would be tremendous. Um, and ultimately, I do think folks are thinking about this in an intelligent way. They don't want to squander innovation. So how do you continue to allow assets like Ethereum to kind of continue to flourish in the US, but then do so in a way that gives certain guardrails so that as companies are building on Ethereum, building products, building services, that they're doing it in a way that doesn't run afoul of any existing legislation or any existing rules and still thinks right. about protecting investors. Like these are the kinds of 
frameworks and the kinds of conversations we are having. Um, and I know some other important industry players like Coinbase and others um, are also down in DC often trying to ensure that, you know, because crypto is smaller than a lot of the other industries, these folks look at and are responsible for overseeing um, that it, these, you know, these types of conversations are not lost on them, not forgotten. I want to circle back to the importance of the ETF for one specific reason. You sure. sort of alluded to the idea that you believe there's this, I'll call it a wall of money, awaiting entry into the crypto space. I think we've long awaited the pension, sovereign wealth, you know, endowments, the really, really huge money. Is the ETF the simple unlock to that? Or do you think that we get it? I mean, it's possible we get an ETF and they're just not interested, right? <laughs> no, I mean, I think today when you look at um, who holds ETFs here in the US, yes, there's a lot of retail activity among ETFs, but the largest holders are actually, in many cases, institutions, right? Um, it's, it's, you know, in many ways, a, an easy and accessible way to get exposure to a given asset or subset of the market. Um, and so I think when you think about the data that keeps getting surveyed from the financial advisory community, uh, from the you know, individual investor community, as well as institutions, I think many of them would say that there are complications that do come from the attempt to buy, hold you know, crypto directly or set up an exchange account or you know, who it said institutions shouldn't should have access to keys, what happens if they're no longer employed there. I mean, the list goes on and on. So I do certainly think that an ETF um, will unlock, you know, a, a much larger audience um, that will then have a very known and, and kind of easy way to interact with crypto. And I do believe that'll lead um, to inflows and increasing the monetary base that that resides within Bitcoin itself. Well, a half a percent allocation from some of these would Huge. fundamentally change everything for the crypto landscape. Indeed. Do you think that an ETF also could encourage more companies to follow the likes of MicroStrategy and Tesla, which sort of caused that last major bull run, right? People forget that MicroStrategy putting Bitcoin on the balance sheet was sort of the big catalyst, but accounting rules really made that difficult for any other company. That would be solved by an ETF as well, correct? You could put the Bitcoin spot ETF on your balance sheet and not have to worry about where you market to market or taking effectively the lowest price of the quarter and and you know uh, marking it to that. In in our conversations um, with CFOs and treasurers, at, you know, corporates and and other entities that have to manage a balance sheet, um, they've certainly more than turned the corner from why to kind of why not. Right. Um, and, and that was probably a little bit more prevalent in a lower interest rate environment. Um, and so maybe some of them um, have not felt as strong towards crypto as rates have risen and they've found other ways to manage collateral on their balance sheet and earn yield. But I think many of them believe that over the long term, um, this allocation is going to increase. And it's important that at least some of their balance sheet shows up to this asset class for sure. Yeah, that that makes perfect sense. I know we only have a few minutes left. Is there anything else that you're really excited about? I, I'm trying these days to focus a little less on all the negative things that have happened over the past years because that. yeah, it's it's to me it's now no, noise and not signal, and honestly, it's just exhausting. So, is there anything you're seeing in the space? It doesn't even have to be specific from grayscale that you're seeing being built or that's really encouraging for you that you're excited about. 
Um, well, certainly one thing that's ticked up uh, over the last couple of months is the idea of ordinals, um, which I think is super interesting. Um, you know, I think I continue to be impressed with how crypto as an industry continues to unlock new use cases. And I feel super fortunate to be in the seat that I am where I'm often seeing this, um, you know, relatively early, right? We were looking at and talking about the metaverse as early as probably 2018 before that was like even a, you know, colloquial word that, that, you know, is kind of part of everyday kind of conversation. And so, um, I'm kind of excited more about the unknown Scott. And I know you may not love that answer. I do love that answer actually, because each cycle is driven by, I do love that answer and I'll let you finish. I'm sorry, because each cycle has always been driven by something that I didn't predict right before the cycle happened. Yeah. I mean, you know, the idea that, you know, maybe NFTs don't, don't, you know, persist in the, in the, you know, kind of format and you come to know and use them like, you know, digital art and, and things like that, but instead unlocking other ideas around ticketing and authenticity and provenance and, um, you know, things of that nature. I think that's, that's really exciting, right? And, and I'm kind of excited for what else is going to come that um, we haven't even thought of yet as a community. And um, that's what's so exciting and transformative about this asset class, right? We, we weren't talking about these things, you know, 24 months ago. So what are we going to be talking about in 24 months? And I hope you'll have me back and we'll, we'll talk yeah, about it. Yeah, we, we can, we can circle back. back and talk about yeah. it for, for sure. So r- really quickly, is there anything that the general public, people who are listening to this can do? Is there anyone they can contact? Is there, Should we push on our legislators? Should we be sending letters to the SEC to help make sure that we do see a spot ETF? Or is it now in the hands of the court? <laughs> no, I mean, it's certainly at the moment in the hands of the court, but that's not to say that you know people should not you know, also be contacting their legislators. I think we certainly saw um, a lot of politicians run on the idea of crypto and Bitcoin during the midterm elections. And um, it'll be interesting to see how that, you know, transpires as we move forward. Um, What's interesting is that, um, you know, this is a, for once, um, an issue in Washington that has bipartisan support, which is really, really unique. And having bipartisan support, you know, gives me honest hope that legislation will come uh, from this. But I, I think regardless, um, I, I'll kind of leave you with this, whether you were or you are, you will be a GBTC holder or spot Bitcoin ETF holder, um, whether you hold or did hold or will hold Bitcoin or some other asset, um, I cannot overemphasize enough the importance of this lawsuit and your giving support to it. Um, the outcome of this lawsuit, I think, is not just about the conversion of GBTC to an ETF. I, I am confident that it will also, uh, and you know, ultimately influence the direction and the posturing that regulators take towards Bitcoin over the short to medium term. Um, and so the implications are even further reaching and, and further value, you know, um, impacting than that billions of dollars that'll be unlocked from GBTC directly in an ETF format, but also on you know the crypto market more broadly. A win for Grayscale is a win for the entire industry. Exactly. Bottom line. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, uh, Michael. It was really a pleasure. I'm glad we finally got to sit down and you are absolutely uh, invited back. Good. Uh, 24 it. months, but I hope a lot sooner than that. We might even need to circle back in like two months, right? Okay. After the lawsuit is settled and talk about that. 
I'd love that. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Let's do